Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to address a question this morning that is pretty controversial in Christianity among evangelicals, and it's basically the question of the sinfulness of human beings and the radical need for regeneration. Now let me explain what I mean by the radical need for regeneration. The question that we have to ask is how sinful are human beings? What effect did Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, what effect does that truly have upon humanity? And throughout the history of the church over the past 2,000 years, there's been four primary answers to this question. The first answer to this question is called Pelagianism. Pelagianism. It's named after a British monk named Pelagius. And basically, he was around in the late 300s, and he had some debates with Augustine and others. And basically, his argument is that humans are born neutral, that we are born as a blank slate, that we haven't inherited any type of sin nature from Adam and Eve, and that basically uh, it's dependent upon our environment whether we're going to sin or not. Now, this was declared heretical by the early church in 418 AD at the Council of Carthage. And it's been condemned by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Pelagianism. We can, we can write that off as, as heresy because the Bible obviously teaches that we've inherited a sin nature. Now the second view that's come along is what's called semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism basically says is that yes, we're sinful. And yes, Adam and Eve's sin has affected us. But we still have ability we still have within ourselves the free will to accept or reject Christ based upon some um, island of, of, of light or island of righteousness within us that enables us to choose freely. We're not, we're not totally sinful. We're just sick spiritually. The third category or the third answer is what we call Arminianism. Now, Arminianism says that we are totally depraved, that we are dead in sin, that we have inherited a sin nature from Adam that makes us condemned in our sin, and we can't do anything to save ourselves. But what the Arminian position says is that God has given prevenient grace to everyone who hears the gospel, and they can accept or reject Christ by cooperating with this enabling or this prevenient grace grace. Now there's a fourth category called the reformed view, the reformed or the sovereign view. This view says that we are totally dead in our sins. We are in bondage to sin. We are spiritually unable to respond favorably to God unless God does something in his sovereign grace to change our hearts and to make us spiritually alive. We are dead. We are totally depraved in that we are totally sinful, and that we are totally unable to come to Christ on our own unless God makes the first move. And so we've got to ask the question, which is the most biblical answer to this? Well, let's go back to the Bible and look at Jesus' words 
in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice what the text says. It says, no one can come to me. This word can come does not necessarily speak of permission, like nobody has permission to come to Jesus. What the original language here teaches is that no one in and of themselves has the inherent ability morally or spiritually to come to Christ. And when Jesus says come to Christ, that basically is a metaphor for faith. No one can in and of themselves have faith in Christ unless, as Jesus says there, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Something must happen to the sinner in order to come to Christ. And Jesus says that something is the drawing of the Father. The Father must draw a person to Christ. Now, if you go down in verse 65 of John chapter 6, Jesus says it again. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It is granted him. It's given as a gift. I think some translations say, unless it is enabled by the Father. In other words, the Father must grant or must draw a sinner to Christ because in and of themselves, a sinner has not the moral or spiritual ability to come to Christ. Now, most people today are probably in the semi-Pelagian camp. They believe that, yes, Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin was brought into the world, and that we're still sinful, and that we have a measure of depravity, but they would say that we're not totally unable to come to Christ. We still have the ability to choose. We still have the ability to make the first move towards God. We're the ones who ultimately accept Jesus. We're not totally dead, but we're somewhat spiritually sick, and we can choose based upon our free will one way or the other. I believe, and I'm not going to quarrel over this as a dogmatic issue, but I believe the Bible teaches that we are totally depraved and we are totally unable to come to Christ. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, tells us that just, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he brought condemnation, he brought guilt, he brought sin, he brought death into the human race. And we have inherited this sin, this guilt, and therefore we are spiritually dead. We are in bondage to sin the moment that we are conceived. So every single human being who's ever lived, except for Jesus Christ, our Savior, has been born in a state of being condemned, in a state of being guilty, in a state of being sinfully separated from God. David says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah seventeen nine, 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We are sinful to the core. That word core comes from a Latin word, radix, radical, at the root. Every faculty of our being, from our mind and our will and our emotions, everything has been uh, tragically affected by the fall of Adam and Eve, and therefore we are in a state of bondage without Christ. That's the way every person is born. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. In other words, we can't change naturally or supernaturally our sinful state that we've inherited from Adam the moment that we were conceived. Paul states it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul paints a very, very dire picture here of the human condition without Jesus, that every single person that's born is born as a child of wrath. We're under God's condemnation. We are dead in our sins. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to our passions. We're enslaved to the course of this world. We are spiritually dead and in bondage to sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and following, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So Paul's argument here is that there's not one single person on the face of the earth that seeks after God. There's not a person who does good. There's not a person who's righteous. As a matter of fact, every single person is in bondage to sin we are guilty we're under condemnation we are born dead in our trespasses and if that weren't bad enough paul later on in romans 8 chapters chapter 8 verses 7 and 9 says this he says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What Paul's saying here is there's two categories of people. There are those who are in Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You've been saved by grace. You are in Christ. He says there's another category, those who are in the flesh. So there's lost people and there are saved people. What does this Bible passage say about those who are lost, those who are in the flesh? It says that they cannot submit to God's law and they cannot please God. So in and of themselves, sinners cannot save themselves. They cannot make the first move towards God. They're in bondage to sin. They're hostily set against God. They're enemies of God. They are under God's wrath. They can't do anything to get themselves out of this situation. And Jesus sums it up in John 8, 34, and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we've got a dire, dire conclusion to reach from these passages of Scripture that teach about the total depravity and the total inability of human beings in their sinful state. The Bible says that sinners without Christ are dead in their sins. They're enslaved to sin. They're unable to please God. They're not seeking God. They're unable to come to Christ on their own. They are dead. They are blind. They are sinners. They're enslaved. They are in bondage. Every faculty of their being to the core is radically corrupted by sin. And that is the condition of every single human being born into this world who does not have Christ as their Savior. So which leads us to the ultimate question for this morning. Is there a radical need for regeneration? And the answer is absolutely yes. There's a radical need for regeneration because we are radically corrupted. We are radically sinful. We as sinners need to be regenerated. Which leads us to the question, what in the world is regeneration? Well, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, God gives a picture of a future day under the new covenant when Jesus Christ would come, of a day that God would do this amazing work of regeneration. So let's look at Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. And God is the one that's speaking here. Listen to what God says he's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you should be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises to do this miraculous work of regeneration and it's used with very different metaphors throughout the scripture let's just define regeneration for just a moment it comes from two words re and generate regeneration now re means again to do something again generate means to be born or to be created so regeneration is simply the biblical term of being recreated or born again or given a new life which makes sense if we're dead in our sins if we're corrupt if we are enslaved if we are in bondage and we can't get ourselves out of this if we're dead we need to be made alive and notice in this passage in ezekiel what god promises to do god says i'll cleanse you with water this is a symbolic spiritual cleansing that's done by the holy spirit he says he'll give us a new heart we have dead stony unresponsive hearts that are wicked and black And God says, I'm going to replace that dead, stony, wicked heart and give you a new heart, a heart that's responsive, a heart that has the Holy Spirit in you. And God's the primary one who is doing this. Now, with this Ezekiel passage as our context, where God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, I'm going to to do this spiritual cleansing, and I'm going to put my spirit within you, let's go to John chapter 3, which is probably the most famous teaching on regeneration in the Bible. It's the story of Nicodemus that comes to Jesus and we find out what it means to be born again. So let's read John chapter 3, verse 1 and following. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things or these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now notice that Jesus says, you must be born again. Now some people look at that and think that it's something that we must do. Just because Jesus gives the command that we must be born again does not mean that somehow we can produce this regeneration or we can somehow cause ourselves to be born again. We can't do that. We've just looked at all these scriptures that teach that we're spiritually dead, that we're in bondage, that we're incapable of doing this, that no one can come to Christ unless God grants it to him or God draws him. So we can't cause ourselves to be born again. We can't be. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Flesh gives birth to, spl- to flesh. So we can't cleanse ourselves. We can't put this new heart within ourselves. It, Jesus says here it's like the wind blowing. Everyone who's born of the spirit, it's, so it is like the wind that blows. And so God sovereignly comes and causes this new birth to happen. We don't generate the regeneration. In other words, we don't cause ourselves to be born again. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, causes us to be born again. Later on in John 6, we were looking at John 6 earlier. John six sixty three, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So in other words, you and I can't just choose out of our own free will or out of our own natural tendencies to somehow come to Christ. The semi-Pelagian view that that somehow we can just choose one day whether we're going to believe in Jesus or not. We can't do that. Yes, we choose. Don't hear me wrong here. We trust in Christ. We believe in Christ. But the reason we do that is because we've first been regenerated. We've first been born again. We can't make the first move towards God. God must make the first move towards us in regeneration, this new birth, this washing. Paul describes it in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you must be born again. You must be regenerated. You must be made spiritually alive. This must happen in order for you to trust in Christ for salvation. But again, you can't do it. 
It has to be done to you by a sovereign God. So what exactly happens? What is regeneration? What is this new birth? Let me give you three things that happen or three things that describe the new birth. First of all, regeneration is an instantaneous change. It's not a gradual process. It happens in an instant. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses. We were spiritually in bondage. We were dead. We were children of wrath. But God, because of his grace, made us alive. There was a moment in time where God did the work. God made us alive. It was an instantaneous change where God supernaturally uh, took us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now we see this illustrated in Acts chapter 16. Paul goes to Philippi. He goes down by the river and starts preaching. And there's a woman named Lydia in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice the text doesn't say Lydia opened her own heart. It says the Lord opened her heart to respond. So what comes first, the responding or the opening of the heart? In Scripture, the opening of the heart or the regeneration or the new birth comes first and then comes the response. So number one, regeneration is an instantaneous change. But number two, it produces this inward miraculous change of heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's this newness. You've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. You've been resurrected. You, you're miraculously a new person with a new heart. God took your heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. Thirdly, it's a mighty supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just create new habits within us, but actually makes us alive in Christ with new power and ability. It's not just a new leaf online, a new, like turn over a new leaf. It's not just some type of moral improvement. It's a radical change that gives us new affections, new abilities, new power. Second Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We've got the divine nature implanted in us through regeneration that gives us new affections, that gives us a new identity, that makes us a new creation in Christ. So if a person is to be saved, well, if there's the radical need for regeneration because we're in bondage, we're dead, we're blind, we're enslaved, then God must make a person spiritually alive. God must cause them to be born again. God must replace their heart of stone with the heart of flesh. God must open their blind eyes. God must wash them with regeneration. God must give them life. God must break the chains of bondage to sin. God must open a sinner's heart. God must do it. And here's the $10 million question that, that people struggle with. Which comes first? Does believing in Jesus cause you to be born again? Or are you born again first in order to believe in Jesus? Which comes first? 
I believe the Bible teaches that we're born again first. That the Lord opens our hearts, that the Lord regenerates us. And then in that instantaneous moment when he takes us from spiritual death to spiritual life and overcomes our deadness to sin, he grants us the gift of faith whereby we freely choose Christ. Jesus explains this in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Jesus says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were born of God first, and then we were able to believe on his name. Being born again is a sovereign work of God. Now, depending upon your view of man, the sinfulness of man, you're going to see differences in how a person responds to Christ. If you believe the natural state of man today is that of moral and spiritual neutrality, so that he can do good or bad as he pleases, which is the Pelagian view, which is heretical, then you won't see the radical need for regeneration. If you believe that our natural state is one of spiritual and moral sickness, but that we still have the ability to somehow respond favorably to the gospel, the semi-Pelagian view, you won't see a radical need for regeneration. If you believe that we are partially or totally depraved, but that God gives sufficient enabling or prevenient grace to everyone to cooperate with this grace, the Arminian view, then you will not see the need for regeneration. But if you believe that we're totally dead in sin, and we are therefore unable to respond favorably to the gospel unless God in his sovereign grace comes and changes our hearts so that we become spiritually alive, then you will realize how desperately we need the radical nature of regeneration. Of regeneration. John 5.21 For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. God is the one that gives life. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the new birth, when God causes us to be born again, he gives us the gifts of repentance and faith. In Acts 11.18 When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God gave them the gift of repentance. They didn't produce the repentance. They didn't somehow choose and then were were born again. God granted them repentance through the new birth. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Which came first, being appointed to eternal life or believing? In that text, you believe because you were appointed to eternal life. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, 
but you should also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to us as a gift to believe. Faith is a gift. The very faith that you had to believe in Jesus, the very repentance that you exercised to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, that did not come from you because you were dead in sin. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've repented of your sins, if you've become a Christian, those were given to you as a gift in the miracle of regeneration. James 1.18 Of his own will, speaking of God, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So there is a radical, radical need for regeneration. So if you're listening to this radio program this morning, and you know that you're dead in your sins, and you know that you're separated from Christ, and you know that you can't save yourself, and you know deep down in your soul that if you were to die today, you'd spend eternity in hell separated from God, you need to be born again. You cannot produce this being born again. The Bible says the one thing that you can do is you call upon the name of the Lord. You repent, you believe, you cry out to Jesus. And once you do that, it's evidence that God has caused you to be born again. So would you please cry out to Jesus, ask him to save you and forgive you of your sins.